0: Well, many of you don't remember what life was like before the internet. That's because that many of you were not yet born 30 years ago on the outset of the internet. Um, College students, we love you, but you simply do not realize how easy... You have life compared to those of us who lived pre-internet. Can I get an amen from the more? Ex- I mean, the, the the I was the older, having I mean more experienced people here. Um, you see, when I was your age in the early '90s, you can start doing the math. Yes, I'm fifty. Nobody walked around with a cell phone, let alone a smartphone. A text message back then was something that you wrote down on a piece of paper, sealed in an envelope, and took to a post office. It took a week to get a reply. You simply don't realize how easy life has become. For instance, if you want to watch a movie in the comfort of your own home or dorm room, you can do so like that with the streaming platform of your choice, you know, Hulu or Amazon Prime. When when I was in college, it took a lot more effort to watch a movie. There were these things called video rental stores. Um... Places where you could go to pick up VHS tapes. What's a VHS tape, you might ask? Well, that's what um, we had before the DVD was invented in in the late 90s. And these video rental stores are brick and mortar, mortar buildings with really ugly carpet. I think that was a prerequisite. With aisles and aisles of movie titles, usually in alphabetical order. And if the particular movie that you wanted to watch was a new release or at all popular, there was a very, very good chance... That when you got to the video store, other people had gotten there before you and cleaned it out. Okay? And you were out of luck. Life was really, really hard back then. <laughs> you know, more experienced people, help me out here. What was the most popular video rental chain? Blockbuster. Blockbuster. At one point, there were over 9,000 Blockbuster stores in the US. Today, they've all closed their doors, with the exception of one in Bend, Oregon, that's kind of stayed open as somewhat of a tourist attraction. So, what happened to Blockbuster? Well, many trace the demise of Blockbuster to a single corporate board meeting in the year 2000 where a young upstart company gave a pitch to Blockbuster leadership. The pitch, pitch essentially went like this. Buy us out for $50 million and we'll manage your online business for the internet age. Big price tag, $50 million. And although Blockbuster was sitting on $465 million in cash from a recent IPO, that they could have easily made the deal. The story goes that Blockbuster Video laughed the leadership of this upstart company right out of their corporate offices. Big mistake. That upstart company is now worth over $150 billion. Not million, billion. Any guesses? Yes, Netflix. Blockbuster's leadership's hubris lack of foresight, and failure to adapt to the digital age led to the company's demise. After that fatal meeting with Netflix, it's safe to say that the handwriting was on the wall for Blockbuster Video. How many of you heard that figure of speech before? The handwriting was on the wall. That phrase means an indication of imminent disaster or failure. But originally, literally, it meant... Handwriting that was on a wall. Handwriting that predicted a coming disaster. Many people don't know the origin of that phrase. It actually comes from the the book and chapter that we're going to be studying today as we continue our sermon series through the book of Daniel. An Old Testament book which highlights the eternal unshakable kingdom of God that will one day fully replace all the shakable kingdoms that come and go on this earth. We're in Daniel chapter 5 today. Every chapter of this book points to the truth that God is in charge of the whole universe, and you can trust him. Or as Ryan put it at the beginning of our series, in all, God is above all. Say that with me. In all, God is above all if you've been with us from the beginning of the year when we gave an overview of the book of Daniel, you know already that Daniel has an interesting literary feature. Instead of being written in Hebrew, like the vast majority of the Old Testament, chapters two through seven of the book are instead written in Aramaic. If you haven't seen the overview video, I'm going to click to the next slide. Um, chapters two through seven here are in Aramaic. If you haven't seen the overview video of, the, of Daniel created by the Bible Project, that's your homework today. Um, navigate to BibleProject.org and search for their Daniel overview video. It's fascinating. It's a very well-done video. As Ryan highlighted last week, these six chapters in the middle, in Aramaic, contain a, a really cool and fascinating literary device called chiasm, in which a sequence of ideas or themes are presented and then repeated in reverse order. And the result is sort of a mirror effect throughout the passage as themes are reflected back on themselves in this chiastic Aramaic section of Daniel. Um, Each theme is presented, then connected or reflected, um, connected or related to its reflection. So chapter 2, for instance, the king's dream is linked and reflected by chapter 7, Daniel's dream. Chapter three, the ordeal of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fiery furnace is reflected in chapter six by Daniel's ordeal in the lion's den. And in the middle of the chiasm, which usually highlights the main point that the author wants to get across, wants to draw the reader's attention to, chapter four, Nebuchadnezzar's pride and humbling is reflected in chapter five, Belshazzar's pride and humbling. And with this, the author's wanting us to see that although these arrogant and earthly kings display such power and bravado and set themselves up as these like godlike figures, it's ultimately God who's sovereign over them. He's raising them up, but also disposing of them as he wishes. These prideful and powerful king, kings are merely God's hand puppets on the pages of history. And it's this fact that. King Nebuchadnezzar himself acknowledges right at the center of this chiastic structure, the last verse of chapter 4, after God has, has humbled him, he says this. Let's read this together, verse 37. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven, for all his works are right and his ways are just. And what? Those who walk in pride he is able to humble. You know, Nebuchadnezzar learned this lesson the hard way by experience. If you don't humble yourself, God will. If you walk in pride, my friend, the handwriting is on the wall for you. As Scripture says over and over again, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. That's a proverb that's quoted... Several times in the New Testament, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. If you were here last week and Ryan covered chapter 4 and convicted all of us of pride, myself included, I don't think any of us could have escaped those arrows from that message from God's word. He was like, all of us are like, man, yes, I'm prideful, I get it. And, um, but if you were here last week and were convicted like I was... Welcome back, um, because this is the same message. (laughs) No, it's going to be a little bit different. I want to focus um, our attention a little bit more on, he really focused on pride. I want to talk about the, the opposite of that, humility. And have our time be spent around the question, or at least conclude with this question as we go through this story, How then do we, we know we're all prideful, so how then do we humble ourselves before God? That is a very important question, one of the most important questions you could ever ask in this life. Because Jesus would say, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of heaven lies in the balance here of this Question, eternity lies in the balance. So this is important for us to listen to and to consider from God's word. And right here at the center of the book of Daniel, Daniel's hitting that nail (laughs) with the hammer and we need to listen and pay close attention and open our hearts to the Holy Spirit as he speaks through his word. So with that question framing things up for us today, let's dive into verse one of chapter five of the book of Daniel. They drank wine and praised the gods of gold and silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. So chapter 5 of Daniel begins by recounting a huge party thrown by a Babylonian king named Belshazzar. Now, don't get confused here. I know this gets, you're like, that sounds familiar, Belshazzar. Well, don't get it confused with Daniel's Babylonian name, which is similar, which is Belteshazzar. Okay? This is Belshazzar, two totally different people. Okay, just want to say that. Um, Nebuchadnezzar died in 562 BC, and now Belshazzar is on the throne. Belshazzar was the crown prince of Babylon who acted as king from 553 BC to 539 BC. So he didn't immediately succeed um, Nebuchadnezzar. Um, his father, Nebonius, was the actual Babylonian king during this time, but he had sort of abdicated his throne and left it to his son, Belshazzar, because he wanted to worship another deity that wasn't that popular. <laughs> and so he moved to a different city, left Belshazzar in charge of the kingdom so he could worship as he wanted to, to another unpopular, not as popular, uh, pagan um, deity. Uh, Most of the Babylonian empire worshipped a guy named Marduk or a god named Marduk. But anyway, Belshazzar is left in charge. He would have been considered the ruler of Babylon and the king. Now, you might have noticed that our English translations say that Nebuchadnezzar was Belshazzar's father. But in the original Aramaic, this is simply in the sense that Belshazzar is Nebuchadnezzar's successor in power, not his actual son. Anyway, the important thing to know out of all that information is that there has been a big time gap from the end of chapter 4 now to the beginning of chapter 5. We know that chapter 5 begins on a specific date, October 12th, 539 B.C., in fact, because a significant historical event happened that very night that's recorded in this passage. That's the day that's spelled the end of the powerful and mighty Babylonian empire as it fell to the Persians. You might remember from chapter 1 that Daniel was abducted and dragged to Babylon in 605 B.C., likely as a teenager. So now it's 539 B.C., and you math whizzes quickly do the math and realize, okay, 66 years have passed. And if you continue to do the math, how old does that make Daniel? If he was a teenager when he's abducted, 66 years have passed. How old is he? He's in his 80s, most likely. Daniel is an old man now. So don't picture some young man when you picture Daniel as we get to chapter 5. You need to picture an older guy, 80 years old, gray hair, a lot of wisdom, but on his way out, okay? Okay? Daniel's an old man. Now what's fascinating is that while Belshazzar is throwing this lavish party inside the city walls of Babylon, an enemy army from Persia is laying siege to the city. They've surrounded the outside of the walls. They're trying to conquer the city. Why is Belshazzar throwing a party? Well... This goes to show how self-confident and arrogant he was as a leader. The walls of Babylon were so thick, four chariots could ride abreast on top of the wall. He wasn't worried about the walls crumbling. He wasn't worried about the water supply because a portion of the Euphrates River ran under the wall. Ample water. They weren't worried about their food supply because the walls were extended far enough, they grew their own food within the city walls. The Hanging Gardens of Babylon were there, one of the wonders of the world at that time. So they had food, they had water, um, they apparently had a lot of wine because they're having a big party with it. They could hold out for years, or so they thought. Belshazzar evidently believed that Babylon was impervious To the Persian army. So he throws this huge party. And Daniel records here that at the party, they're using the sacred vessels that Nebuchadnezzar looted from the temple in Jerusalem back in 605 BC. And while using these sacred vessels uh, to have a drunken party, the text also notes in verse 4 that they were also worshiping the gods of gold and silver and bronze and iron and wood and stone. You know, as humans, we are created to worship. We simply cannot worship nothing. (laughs) We will always worship something. And if you don't worship the creator, you'll inevitably worship the creation. What happens next is fascinating. Verse 5. Immediately the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace. So right in the middle of this party, it's interrupted opposite the lamp, lampstand, and the king saw the hand as it wrote. And the king's color changed, and his thoughts alarmed him, and his limbs gave way, and his knees knocked together. Okay, paralyzing fear here hits Belshazzar. The king called loudly to bring in the enchanters, the Chal- Chaldeans, and the astrologers. The king declared to the wise men of Babylon, whoever reads this writing and shows me its interpretation shall be clothed with purple and have the chain of gold around his neck and shall be the third ruler in the kingdom. Now remember, Belshazzar is the second ruler in the kingdom. So he can't give that away (laughs) because that's him. Um, Nebonius, his father, is technically still the king. So he's offering the highest position that he can possibly offer in the Babylonian Empire, the third ruler in the kingdom. And what's ironic is that it's a rather empty offer considering what's about to go down the Babylonian empire is about to topple over. Notice with me here that Daniel isn't summoned along with the wise men of Babylon, as he would have been if Nebuchadnezzar was in charge. Evidently, with the changing of guard and leadership and the passing of years, Daniel has sort of been, as an old man, put out to pasture, so to speak, most likely in his old age, forgotten about by this new, young, brash, arrogant Babylonian king named Belshazzar. Look so at with me at verse eight. Then all the king's wise men came in, but they could not read the writing or make known to the king the interpretation. Then King Belshazzar was greatly alarmed, and his color changed, I guess even further, because it already had, and his lords were perplexed. The best and brightest in the kingdom could not help him out. They were of no use in this dilemma. They couldn't read or interpret the writing that was on the wall. And the fear that was gripping Belshazzar's heart got worse. But there's one person in the kingdom that still remembers this Jewish exile named Daniel. And it's the queen. Now, um, this woman that we're going to meet next in the narrative is most likely um, not Belshazzar's wife because the text has already said that his wives were there at the party and she wasn't at the party. Likely, this is King Nebuchadnezzar's widow, okay? Probably an old woman herself. Whoever she is, she's someone with wisdom and experience, And apparently some clout because she comes into the party uninvited and unescorted. And she takes charge and she addresses Belshazzar without fear. Verse 10, the queen, because of the words of the king and of his lords, came into the banqueting hall and the queen declared, O king, live forever. Let not your thoughts alarm you or your color change. There is a man in your kingdom in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. In the days of your father predecessor light and understanding and wisdom like the wisdom of the gods were found in him and king nebuchadnezzar your father predecessor your father the king made him chief of the magicians enchanters Chaldeans and astrologers because an excellent spirit of knowledge and understanding to interpret dreams explain riddles and solve problems were found in this daniel whom the king named belshazzar now let daniel be called and he will show the interpretation so the queen to the rescue here. So 80-year-old Daniel, still living in exile in Babylon, probably in some sort of retirement at this point, is remembered and summoned to the party. Verse 13. Then Daniel was brought in before the king. The king answered and said to Daniel, you are that Daniel, one of those exiles of Judah, whom the king, my father, brought from Judah. Now let's take a quick time out here. What's the tone of voice behind this? We can't really know, but there's some clues. You are that Daniel, one of those exiles. You know, I I feel it's almost like Belshazzar is sort of like puffing himself up and saying, I'm important here, and you're one of those guys, but I need your help. Um, He seems to be... Addressing Daniel in somewhat of a condescending tone here, putting Daniel in his place before he asked for his help. Ironic that in his arrogance, Belshazzar is belittling the only guy who can actually help him. Verse 14, I have heard of you, that the spirit of the gods is in you, and that light and understanding and excellent wisdom are found in you. Now the wise men, the enchanters, have been brought in before me to read this writing and make known to me its interpretation, but they could not show the interpretation of the matter. But I have heard that you can give interpretations and solve problems. Now if you can read the writing and make known to me its interpretation, you shall be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around your neck and shall be third ruler in the kingdom. In his pride, Belshazzar is thinking that he's making Daniel an offer that he can't refuse. But now it's Daniel's turn. An old man, gray hair, if he had any hair, (laughs) full of wisdom, who couldn't care less about being third in power in a kingdom that's about to topple over. It's Daniel's turn as God's representative to put this young, brash ruler in his place. And as we read, you can pick up From Daniel's tone, that he probably didn't have much respect for Belshazzar, at least not as much as he had for Nebuchadnezzar. Look at verse 17. Then Daniel answered and said before the king, let your gifts be for yourself. Give your rewards to another. Nevertheless, I will read the writing to the king and make known to him the interpretation. O king, the most high God gave Nebuchadnezzar your father kingship and greatness and glory and majesty. Notice that Daniel does not mention anything about Belshazzar's greatness or majesty or glory. He mentions that Nebuchadnezzar had all of that, but he's careful to also mention that who gave that to him. The most high God. There's an authority even above Nebuchadnezzar. Verse 19. And because of the greatness that God gave to Nebuchadnezzar, all peoples, nations, and languages trembled and feared before him. Whom he would, he killed, and whom he would, he kept alive. Whom he would, he raised up, and whom he would, he humbled. And now Daniel is going to begin to recount the story about Nebuchadnezzar that we heard last week in chapter 4, verse 20. But when his heart was lifted up, Nebuchadnezzar's heart, and his spirit was hardened so that he dealt proudly, he was brought down from his kingly throne, and his glory was taken from him. He was driven among the children of mankind, and his mind was made like that of a beast, and his dwelling Was with the wild donkeys. He was fed grass like an ox, and his body was wet with the dew of heaven until he knew that the Most High God rules the kingdom of mankind and sets over it whom he will. And now Daniel begins to paint the contrast between Nebuchadnezzar and Belshazzar. And you, his son or predecessor, Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, though you knew all of this. You should have known Belshazzar. You could have learned the easy way by example rather than the hard way by experience. Verse 23, But you have lifted up yourself against the Lord of heaven, and the vessels of his house have been brought in before you, and you and your lords and your wives and your concubines have drunk wine from them, and you have praised the gods of silver and gold and bronze and iron and wood and stone, which do not see or hear or know, but the God in whose hand is your breath. And whose are all your ways you have not honored? Which means, which being interpreted means, Belshazzar, you are in deep doo-doo here. It's keeping you awake. Verse 24, then from his presence the hand was sent, and this writing was inscribed. And this is the writing that was inscribed, Mini, mini, Tekel, Parson which being interpreted in Arabic, that's numbered, numbered, weighed, divided. Verse 26, this is the interpretation of the matter. Meaning, God has numbered the days of your kingdom and brought it to an end. Tackle, you have been weighed in the balances and found wanting. Perez, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and Persians. So Daniel interprets this handwriting that's on the wall, and it is bad news for Belshazzar. He's done. His kingdom and rule are over. But I want you to notice how Belshazzar responds here. The humble response would have been what? It would have been for Belshazzar to say, oh, no. I what, what must I do to be safe? To fall on his knees before Daniel and cry for mercy from the Most High God. But does that, is that what Belshazzar does? Let's look. He arrogantly acts like he's still in charge. Look at verse 29. Then Belshazzar gave the command. So he's still like trying to be in command here. And Daniel was clothed with purple and a chain of gold was put around his neck and a proclamation was made about him that he should be the third ruler in the kingdom. As if being third ruler in the kingdom held any weight after what Daniel just said. The hubris of Belshazzar is astounding here. When he should have been crying out to God for mercy, he was still acting like he was in control and still had power. And verse 30 shows us that that was a grave mistake. Emphasis on the grave. Verse 30. That very night, Belshazzar, the Chaldean king, was killed. And Darius the Mede received the kingdom, being about 62 years old. History tells us that the Medo-Persian army surrounding the city of Babylon that night, cleverly found a way to divert the waters of the Euphrates River. And they just walked right under the wall, probably waded right under the wall, <laughs> into the city under the cover of darkness. And that was the end of the Babylonian Empire. The mighty Babylonian Empire. Done. Belshazzar was killed that very night. That's the story. Now let's get to a little bit of application. What should we take away from this chapter in Daniel, Daniel chapter 5? May I suggest to you, my friends, it's much easier to learn by example than it is to learn by experience. We can see here in Daniel that God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And if you don't humble yourself, you will be humble. So that gets us back to the question that I framed things up with earlier. And what's that? Read this out loud with me. How do we humble ourselves before God? As we close, I want to briefly give you three answers to that question from New Testament scriptures. First one is Romans 12, 3. Look inward. Look inward, Romans 12:3. For by the grace given to me, this is Apostle Paul talking, I say to everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment. Sober judgment looks inward and says, I don't have it all together. I was convicted by Ryan's message last week about pride. I see the pride in my heart. I know I need a savior. I know I'm a sinner. Sober judgment falls on your knees and verbalizes the same question that the Philippian jailer verbalized to Paul and Silas. What must I do to be saved? What must I do to be saved? It verbalizes the question that Belshazzar should have verbalized but didn't. And what's the answer to that question? How does, did Paul and Silas answer the Philippian jailer in Acts? Acts? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Humble yourself. Recognize that you're a sinner in need of God's grace and God's mercy and turn to his provision in the person and the work of Jesus Christ, our Lord and our Savior. Jesus, we need you. You are our only hope. You're the only way of a restored relationship between fallen, broken, sinful humanity and a holy, transcendent God. Jesus is our mediator. Jesus is our savior. Jesus, the name that means the Lord saves. Yeshua, Joshua. We need you, Jesus. Look inward. Recognize your need of a savior. Secondly, look outward. Philippians 2, 3 through 4 Says this: Do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you not look not o- let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. In a world where it's all about me and my rights, it's so hard to humbly put others first. And the only way that we can possibly do that—maybe I may, should have made this third point first, because the other two are outflows from it. The only way to do that is to look upward, okay? To look upward. Philippians chapter 2, 5 through 8, the continuation of the verses we just read. Have this mind among you, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God something to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in likeness of men, and being found in human form, he what? Humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death, on a cross. In order to learn by example rather than experience, we can look at the negative example of Belshazzar, (laughs) what not to do. But we must also look at the positive example of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, on what to do. Jesus is the ultimate example of humility, And the only way to humble yourself is to look to him and what he has done for us on the cross. To look to the gospel and continue to preach the gospel to ourselves every single day. To remind ourselves that even though we are more messed up by sin than we ever thought possible, we're more loved and accepted in Christ than we ever dared to hope. That's the gospel, my friends. We need regular reminders of it, and that's why the gathered church, the gathered local churches all over the world who celebrate on Sunday because that's the day that the Lord Jesus Christ is resurrected from the dead. That's why we gather around this table and the elements of this table. This is one of the ordinances of the church. We call it an ordinance because it's ordained by Jesus. He said to his disciples on the night before he went to the cross, as he held a cup and the bread in the Last Supper and he reinterpreted those, he said, this is the cup. This cup is my blood shed for you. This, is, this broken bread is my body that's broken for you. They likely didn't understand it then. They would understand it in hindsight. But he ordained that they continue practicing that very thing. He said, do this in remembrance of me. And so that's what we're going to do, fittingly, as we close our service today. We're going to remind ourselves of the humility of our Savior that gave himself up for us so that we could be reconciled to a holy God. So that when we cry out, what must we do to be saved? We can look at this and be reminded of God's provision, his one and only Son, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. If you're here this morning, you're just kicking the tires on faith. Um, nobody's going to judge you if you stay right where you are. This is for those who have put their personal faith and looked to, G- look to Jesus and said, Jesus, I need you. As we come today, I'm going to invite the worship team back up. But as we come to the table today, this is how we're going to do it. We're, um, as the worship team leads us in a, in a couple songs... We're going to gather in groups of about 10. So once about 10 people get to each table, um, you'll be led through the taking of the elements. And then as soon as you're done, shuffle back to your seats and others will come um, to fill in behind you. Um, As we remember what our Lord and Savior has done for us. As we remember what he that he died in our place, in our behalf, instead of us as our Lord and Savior. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for your provision. Thank you that as now we, in your, as your gathered church here um, in Nashville, we have the opportunity to remember events some 2,000 years ago and the significance and the um, impact of those on our very lives and our hope for the future, and our hope for eternity. So as we gather around the the table this morning as a body, we acknowledge that we need you, Jesus. We acknowledge that we are sinners in need of a Savior. And we rest in your grace and in the the promise that our sins are separated from us and forgiven as far as the east is from the west. That when you look at us, you no longer see our sin, but you see our Savior. Because we are in Christ. So we not only come with reflective hearts, we come with rejoicing hearts to this table this morning, God. Knowing that we now have hope. Knowing the answer to the question, what must I do to be saved? Thank you. Thank you for Jesus. Amen. Go ahead and stand as we close in worship. And as the Spirit leads you, come forward to take the elements.